Thank you, everybody, for coming. You, you beat the storm, it sounds like, uh, which is coming in tomorrow. Um, I'm going to read from the novel. I'm going to start on page one. <laughs> if any luck, we'll be done by 2.30, 3 o'clock. That was pretty nervous laughter, but... Uh, <laughs> and then I'll take some questions afterwards. Things don't just disappear into thin, but she hangs up on him before he finishes. What the, he says, staring at his cell phone in dismay and trying to remember if she ever hung up on him before. As he finishes filling the tank of his, of his truck and replaces the pump's nozzle, Aaron ponders how this became the kind of argument where his wife hangs up on him. He hauls himself back up into the driver's seat thinking maybe this is really the kind of argument that's about something other than what it's about. Starting the ignition, turning down the oldie station on the radio, he sits, uh, he sits a minute irritably checking the rearview mirror. Another truck waits for him to pull away from the pump. Aaron remembers that he meant to get a donut and Red Bull from the gas station's convenience market, some concentrated discharge of sugar and caffeine to take him, to take him the rest of the way to Rapid City. He looks at his cell to see if she's texted. Fuck if I'm apologizing, he says out loud to nobody and nothing. Without his donut and Red Bull, he glides back out onto Interstate 90 in his red truck with its gold racing stripes and the bumper sticker that reads, Save America from Itself. When he first put on the sticker, he thought he knew what it meant. The more he's thought about it since, the less sure he is. Aaron considers the one time he fell asleep at the wheel. It couldn't have been longer than a couple of seconds, but enough to start veering off the road until another truck's horn blared him into consciousness. His heart didn't stop pounding until he finished the, the route. If you want to wake yourself up good for the rest of a drive, try falling asleep at the wheel for a moment. On the radio, a man and woman sing to each other, not with each other, having their own argument, maybe. She hung up on me, he's thinking. I'm not apologizing. Fuck that. But he's had fights with Scylla Ann before and knows as his indignation subsides that if she hasn't texted by the other side of the bridge at Chamberlain crossing the Missouri River, he'll wind up calling. Is something else wrong, he wonders? Is there something else going on with her? Can this fight actually be about something as trivial as his wallet gone missing, vanished from his jacket, even if now he's a driver without an identity? The man and woman singing to each other on the radio aren't exactly arguing. It's kind of a cowboy song, but not exactly. Half a century old, trippy with spy movie horn riffs. Although Aaron, not caring about music, doesn't break it down like that. Instead, he catches out of the corner of his ear the story that the cowboy sings in the deepest voice 
anyone's heard of the woman seducing him with wine made of strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in spring so she can steal his silver spurs while he sleeps. If I'm honest, Aaron admits to himself ruefully about the conversation with Scylla Ann. I know it's not true that things don't just disappear into thin air. If I'm honest and I've learned anything in this life, it's that things disappear into thin air all the time. The woman singing on the radio reminds Aaron that these are the last days of summer, nine days before the fall. The music that he pays little mind is only something in the background to keep him company and awake. A song finishes, he says out loud, ask me what I just heard, I have no idea. Sometimes instead he'll listen to the talk radio until it becomes too nuts, or the CB radio that's broken at the moment, Aaron having tried futilely back in Mitchell to get it fixed. In his early 40s, he drives Interstate 90 at least three times a week, counting both to and from, sometimes four or five if he can hustle up the commerce. Sometimes when the traffic of other trucks is at a maximum, or just because he feels like it, he cuts down to Highway 44, running through the plains beyond Buffalo Gap. From the cabin of his truck, He aims himself at anything westward that he can see a hundred miles away, at the swath of blue standing, crushing a horizon invaded by the slightest vapor of white, not so much clouds since there hasn't been a cloud in the sky, let alone rain in forever. Highway 44 is draped with the flags of disunion that grow in number the farther west Aaron gets. Later, he'll wonder how it is that on this morning of the argument about the wallet disappearing into thin air, he could have missed, there on the flat plain before him, the two skyscrapers, each a quarter mile high, the breath of Aaron's country, exhaled from the nostrils of Aaron's century. Soon, the change in the landscape announces itself as always dashed lava and the blasted detritus of dying asteroids, slashes of geologic red and gold rendering his truck a chameleon. A song finishes, I have no idea what I just heard, but he still remembers what was playing on the radio the time he fell asleep behind the wheel, a mashup of spirituals and national folk tunes, sung by the most famous singer who ever lived. Old times there are not forgotten, look away, and his truth is marching on, and all my trials will soon be over. In the two seconds when Aaron fell asleep that time, he had a dream that lasted hours, in which the song appeared as a black tunnel in the highway before him. Of course, he has no idea now where the tunnel led or whether it led anywhere or had any ending because he woke with a great start to that warning of the other truck's horn and the open highway. No tunnel in sight. By mid-afternoon, the tail end of the 
seven-hour drive to Rapid City from Sioux Falls. Aaron has neither called his wife nor heard from her. He's buzzy and bleary at the same time in the crossfire of fatigue and two Starbucks espressos self-administered in Chamberlain. But when he slams on the brakes of the truck without bothering to check in the rearview mirror whether anyone is behind him, he knows he's not in the tunnel of any song. He's not dreaming the thing that suddenly has appeared before him and can no longer be missed as he rounds a corner and emerges from a pass into the Dakota Badlands with its rocks shaped like interstellar mushrooms and ridges like the spine of mutated iguana. He doesn't bother pulling his truck over to the side of the highway. Stopping in the middle, he gawks for a full minute, opening and closing his eyes and then opening them again. His truck abandoned mid-highway, Aaron strides to the roadside as though the five extra feet will somehow make what he sees comprehensible. A moment later, he returns to the truck's cabin. Unsure what he would say on it anyway, he remembers the CB is dead. He pulls his cell phone from his pocket. Hey, he says when she answers. Hey, he hears her back, hesitant and quiet. Um, look, I'm sorry, she says. There's a pause, and when he doesn't reciprocate, she says, okay then, annoyed. Then another pause. Aaron? When he still doesn't answer, she's both irritated and worried by his silence. You must be close to Rapid City by now. Listen, he says. I really am sorry, she answers. Testy, but maybe slightly freaked out. Sometimes he wonders if she wonders he's going to leave her. Listen, he says, because he hears the music or something like it. The afternoon sun slides down the sky like a window shade. Aaron studies the little icons on his cell phone. How do you take a picture with this thing, he asks. These things take pictures, don't they? You sound like your mother, she sighs. Tap the little symbol of the camera. How do I send it to you, he asks. Send it to me later. But then he says, more emphatically than he's ever said anything to her, now, you have to see this and tell me tell you that I haven't lost my mind but he knows he hasn't lost his mind he's not in any dream he's not in any tunnel now another truck approaching in the distance from the other direction the one the one's front bumper festooned with the flag of disunion stops in the middle of the highway too like Aaron's like Aaron the other driver gets out of the other truck to walk to the roadside rubbing his eyes as if in a cartoon. Yet another vehicle nears. And as Aaron turns to gaze over his shoulder, up and down the highway, other cars have begun to stop, passengers emerging, everyone's stupefaction surfacing in thought balloons. The sound that's like music that Aaron thought he was hearing, he hears again. Ask me what I just heard, I have no idea, but not this time. Yeah, he calls to everyone in and out of earshot. 
spinning there in the middle of the highway. Oh yeah, explain that, gesturing at the two towers. Did they just appear out of the thin air into which things don't just disappear? It's mid-afternoon, hundreds of cars and trucks already having passed this way since daybreak. Aaron's driven this highway many times, as recently as the previous weekend. Spotting nothing but the forbidding Badlands horizon, utterly undisturbed by human endeavor. But before his eyes now, striped by their four horizontal black bands, patterned by their grave verticals, demarcating windows narrow enough to offset the absurd fear of heights felt by the Japanese-American architect who designed the structures to be the tallest that ever stood. Twin towers rise from the volcanic gorge. They aren't just the tallest things that Aaron has seen since he knows that wouldn't be saying much. They're the tallest things almost anybody's seen. With their 220 floors between them, each of identical height, except one is topped by a colossal aerial antenna jutting out another 400 feet. The dual monoliths rocket to the heavens even as they're ominously earthbound. Aaron lifts the cell back to his ear. Scylla, he says as calmly as he can manage. Anyone who's looked at a television or the internet or a history book the previous score of years recognizes the buildings instantly. On the other end of the phone, she finally says, I don't get it. Some slight hysteria rises in his voice. What do you mean you don't get it? Let's not fight about this too, he thinks. You don't, you don't see it? Them? I do see it. Them. But where are you? Highway 44 in the Badlands, he says. Same 44, same Badlands I drive almost every damn day. She says maybe they're a monument of some kind. Someone's been building a monument. Aaron practically shouts in disbelief. Like Mount Rushmore. But she understands, as he does, that having a fight about this doesn't make sense. Okay, he snaps. They're a monument, realizing this time he's about to hang up on her. Don't go, she pleads. And then, and then Aaron can hear she's scared. And he knows he's scared. He peers around at the rapidly swelling sea of human disbelief, the highway traffic devolving to a parking lot. They look just alike in the pictures, she says. But it can't be them, the actual. uh, I was 17 when they came down. It was a Tuesday, she remembers. I mean, where did they come from? What are they doing in South Dakota? What are they doing anywhere, answers Aaron. He had just turned 21. That weekend, his pals were taking him out to get him hammered. They wound up not going. He pulls the cell from his ear for a moment to make out something, raises the phone in the tower's direction. Do you hear that? Just your radio, she says. 
my truck radio is not on, and the CB is broken. It's coming from, he hums to himself, trying to identify it. What is that anyway? He can't tell whether the music is actually from the towers themselves or from the earth around them. I think I recognize it, she says. He says, you know me and music. One of our parents' songs, she says, or grandparents, she starts humming too. Yeah, that one, he says. Wait, he thinks, I do know this. Address unknown, she sings. No such number, he chimes in. No such a sound. Thank you. So this is the uncomfortable lull where I ask for questions and <laughs> wait 30, 40 seconds for somebody to raise their hand. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> okay. Um, hey, Jeff. I mean, I haven't read the book, um, but it immediately struck me as a lobbyist, maybe Ballard. I hadn't read Ballard until after I wrote my first novel when people, or my second novel, Rubicon Beach, people started making comparisons to Ballard. So I thought, oh, I better, I better read him since I write like him. Um, and I, you know, he's, um, I think, I think it's fair to say he's probably a, a, a smarter and more cerebral writer than I am. Um, uh, but you know, he 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 clearly is is an influence. And since then, I've I've taught I've taught um, High Rise and a few of his other books. So I've become more familiar. I'm sorry. It seems like the two of you would be fellow travelers rather than. Yeah, well, you're not the first person to think that. Anybody else? Yep. Hey, Steve. Hey, Will. Uh, this seems like a, almost a trite question, and excuse me if it is, but it, it, it almost seems like, like this is something that you might have, you might have been driving along listening to some music and, and in some part of your mind these towers emerge as a motif, as a as a thing that had to be explored. It, and I was just wondering, like, it's the worst question of all, but you know, where did you get this idea from? <laughs> uh, this is one of those times when I can kind of answer that question, um, which is is un unusual. I was teaching a workshop, and. Um, I was actually making a point about research. And um, uh, the point I was making to the, the people in the workshop was um, that uh, research is, is great if it informs your material with a certain verisimilitude, but you shouldn't be a prisoner of it. And the example I gave was... Um, uh, from from my last novel, actually, and I don't 
usually refer to my own work in the courses that I'm teaching, but uh, this was a, a, a scene in a novel where a father and a son are taking a train from Paris to Berlin, and they come into Berlin at night, and they see the uh, the the, the the trains, the, the Berlin train station, which is kind of futuristic and it's got a lot of neon, and the sun is sort of dazzled by the, um, you know, the, the sight coming into the city at nighttime. The problem is, the train from Paris to Berlin doesn't arrive at nighttime. It arrives in the morning. I've taken that train. I went online and I researched the schedules to see if the train schedules had changed. They haven't changed. And I decided I didn't care. <laughs> and what I told the students was, you know, it's, it, they're my characters, it's my train, it's my Berlin. The train's going to arrive whenever I decide. <laughs> and for that matter, if I want to put, put Berlin, I told them, in the middle of Iowa, I'll go ahead and do it. And sometime later that night or the next night, and I can't explain to you the leap that God made. I came up with the Twin Towers in the middle of, of the Badlands. Anybody? Yeah? Um, in a community that get, grows tighter with the political environment that we're in, where a lot of writers who have nothing good to say about anybody always and hold their breath when they talk about you and you know see you as sort of a beacon for them or someone at least that everyone looks forward to and everyone listens to how do you feel yourself being in that role and what does that do to culture what does that do to the work that's coming up fresh and and how do you i mean what is it like being that person um, well, first of all, thank you. That's that's a nice compliment. I, you know, I, I don't. Um, I didn't set out to be a political writer as such. Uh, I the, the political context sort of uh, presented itself um, over the last thirty years. Um, when I, you know, I, 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 the section I just read to you, I, I, I wrote in the first week of 2014, and uh, as I said on uh, on Michael's show um, this afternoon, um, when I wrote the scene where the guy has the. The, the, the sticker on his bumper that says save America from itself I would have on the lives of my kids I really would have hoped that scene would be but would be less relevant now instead of more um, so the you know the, uh, the the political context just sort of just sort of works itself in I, I don't start out you know to make a, a political point as such uh, it just it kind of naturally inform, you know informs the work and, and it, it 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 becomes natural to make political connections uh, between the characters even as as they're not political figures and be, between the politics and the music even as it's not overtly political music um, and it comes natural.
as a <coughs> readers, we're lucky enough to experience like the progression of your prose or every book that you put out. And I'm just curious, as an author, looking back, what do you see in the catalog? What do I see? As in, with every book that's come out that, that I've read of yours, the progression that is always there, you're pushing in your prose. But as an author, having done it, looking back, what does it look like? Uh, I, I, you know, the best way I can answer that question, and, and, and I hope this is answering your question, is that um, a lot of times uh, the books, each novel is born out of um, something that I belatedly realize was unresolved in the last book. I, 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 you know, six months after a book comes out, I'll, I'll, I'll have a realization of something I left out, or that oh, oh I should have put that in, or and that'll sometimes become become the seed. So again, it's not it's not a conscious progression, but it, it, it's something that that feels organic. Yeah, I have a question about the music. You have these kind of music cues that come in, and I was wondering if you could discuss like uh, the generation of that and how it relates to like uh, what you're doing with them. Right. I, you know, this in the case of this book, there, it, it, music is one of the things that it's that is one of the subjects of of, of the book. That wasn't that wasn't intentional. Um, that was one of the things that was that sort of came out of the writing. I started writing the story. I had this, as I was saying to Will, I had this idea about the the um, the twin towers there, and 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 the music that was coming out of them wasn't something I planned on till I got till I wrote that scene. And that happens a lot. I mean, I, I I don't I don't outline the books. I I don't work from from notes. I kind of want to leave open the possibility that that something will present itself, and that and that is a case where that happened. And music became more and more important as I wrote the book, until I actually got to a point where I um, I had to start cutting the music back. It was. I felt it was starting to take over the book more than than I wanted to. So, um, a lot of what what got cut uh, over the last eight months was was some of of the music that I worried was becoming was becoming over dominant. Music's a a, a, a big part of. My life, and it's a big part of my creativity. And I've told this story before, and people have heard it. Can here's your cue to start rolling your eyes. The, but the, um, you know, the I, 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 you know, hearing as as a a white boy coming from a very white bread background, hearing Ray Charles the first time made an impact on me. You know, hearing Bob Dylan's Highway 61 revisited and Blonde on Blonde, both for the first time, back to back on the same afternoon, rocked my world. It had as much impact on me as reading Wuthering Heights or Light in August or Tropic of Cancer or 100 Years of Solitude. 
Um, so, you know, when, when they give Bob Dylan a Nobel Prize for literature, for me personally, it makes complete sense, even though I understand the arguments against it as, as well. And so a, a lot of times music is just, like films, it's just, it's just a natural, finds its way into the work whether I planned on it or not. Also, as a, as a follow-up, I, I was trying to place that song that you were referring to, and it, what was that song that he couldn't remember what it was? But it, he, he yes, remember. It, at the very end. No, well, at the beginning when he when the song comes on the radio, and he's just he's not listening. Yeah, to uh, Strawberry Wine by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. <laughs> Great record. <laughs> Well, I'm married to a visual artist, and so I'm influenced by her. Um, and um, and I, I think probably one of uh, one of the advantages of our relationship is is that I don't know as much about visual art as I know about a lot of uh, of other things. So I I learn things from Lori. Um, and you know I, I I'm it's not visual art per se, but I'm influenced by the visuality of film, and I'm influenced by the visual connections as opposed to the narrative connections that that a lot of films make. And I think it's made me a fairly visual writer. So. The falling of the Twin Towers is one of those moments that changes the trajectory of culture. And I noticed that you set their ages, the main characters, when they experience that at 17 and 21. And as a teacher, have you seen that, that shift when people experience that, that kind of coming of age moment and then that, that trajectory changes? So I guess my question is, does that age mean something to you for experiencing that kind of that, that coming of age after and identifying yourself as someone after that fall of the Twin Towers, or is it still like, oh, impressionable, and then using that tragedy to kind of carve out their identities? That's a great question, and I don't, I don't think I've got an answer to it. I, I, I um, because obviously I, I was a lot older, and my own, my own kids were a lot younger. Um, uh, Solange wasn't born yet. Miles was three, three or four. Um, so I don't know what, what impression it made on him. And I was just beginning to, to teach, and I remember the school kind of shut down for the day. So I never really got a sense of what the impact was on the 21-year-old students that I, I was uh, uh, teaching. I mean, do you have an answer? Do, 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 do you know what, what, what kind of impact it made on you at, at whatever age you were? Well, I think it came like, what, a couple of years right after all the dot-com failures. So I remember all of my friends oh. were getting ready to graduate and had to change their jobs because of the careers weren't there, and then all of a sudden it feels like, oh, the world is so tough, and then you think all of a sudden the world's going to end. Right. <laughs> and, and which is worse. <laughs> um, well, see, that, that's a great context, and I, 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 I wouldn't have put it in that context. I, have, I was teaching high school for a while. A lot of students were born over two right about that time, so they were kind of born under that cloud of it, and it's always there. 
Right, and I think that, that, that was true of our son as well because he was three mm -hmm. and he's just started college. So, I mean, it, it, I think that's a good way to put it. It's, it's kind of there in the background of the psyche, e even as it's not something that um, they're necessarily conscious of. Michael? The, the reviewer in the New York Times talks about how she went and started to listen to the songs as she read the book. And do you, do you think that a person needs to hear and to know the songs that are in the book? Well, she, I think she felt she did, and she's, the impression I got from the review was that it, it sort of enhanced the reading for her. So um, I, you know, I didn't, I, you know, I did, did this with a novel, another novel I wrote called Zeroville, which was a lot about film, and I purposely didn't always identify what the films were, and I did, did that with this n novel as well because we live in this age of branding and shorthand, and I wanted the songs or the lyrics or the little fragments to work on their own terms. Um, and if somebody wants to go back and identify all, all the songs, that's fine. I, I, I've gotten other letters like that or emails like that from people who said they, they wanted to identify each song as, as they were I reading it. Mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting you in charge of that. So, um, which, director, which directors do you like? I'm Bontrier or Herzog or tell us about film. Um... Yeah, I was answering, the, I did a, an interview with, uh, with um, I've done a couple of interviews actually with uh, Bruce for uh, uh, Slice magazine and with Rick Moody, which I, I'm not sure where that's going to run. I get asked questions about film, and I think a lot of times with influence, um, and other writers here can probably confirm this, sometimes you're influenced by the things you don't even necessarily like. Um, I mean, I look back, and, and I do like this this film. But I look back now, and after seeing 2001 for the umpteenth time, I realize what an impact that made, especially the the jump cuts. You know, that 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 last 15 minutes or so of of just of 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 these transitional lurches. In, in in time and space made sense to me in a way that I um, that that I don't think I consciously realized at the time. I I I I've been you know I've been influenced by a lot of visual uh, filmmakers, but I'm also you know I I love Howard Hawks and he's not especially you know um, he's he's not. He's not somebody that I think most people would think of as necessarily a visual auteur. You know, he's working with character and story and archetype more. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of of, of answers that that relate directly to uh, the work. And somebody like Kubrick, who I can sort of blow hot and cold on, frankly, uh, leaps to mind. So you feel storytelling is what storytelling. 
well, the choices that are made in, in, in storytelling, the, and the choices that are made in narrative, and the choices that are made in linearity, or lack of it, those all those all had 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 an impact, and the way an image um, can stand in for a, a, a lot more information than what the image holds. Okay, so I'm, you know, since, since I started publishing 30 years ago, two words that come up all the time are experimental and postmodern. Uh, I've never known what a postmodern writer is. Somebody here probably does. Um, uh, a, 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 to, to, to my mind, a postmodern writer uh, works into, into the material a consciousness of the material's artifice that um, then has an impact on the relationship between the writer and the reader. I'm not interested in doing that. I, I, I'm an I'm an old-fashioned writer in the sense that I want the reader to give up his or her reality for the reality of the book. Experimental writer always suggests to me that the the work is about the experiment, and that is not um, that isn't the case when I write novel. I I, I I don't know if I referred to it. In our interview or not, I, uh, I had a novel a few years ago called Our Ecstatic Days. And to make a long story short, um, it's about a single mother who wants to protect her, her small son from the chaos of the world. And in this novel, a, a lake has flooded um, Los Angeles. And the mother gets it into her head for for reasons uh, that, that, that don't even make sense in the novel, actually, let alone what I would explain here. That if she could swim down this hole that's at the bottom of this lake, she will reemerge into another lake where her son, who she's lost, will be returned to her. And when I got to that point in the story, and it's about a quarter of the way into the story, I had this idea... Uh, to basically have the mother swim through the rest of the novel in the sense that there is one line of text that cuts through the next 230 pages of text. So while this, 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 this other world and life and existence and reality is going on, she's swimming through the novel to the scene at the end. That's an idea I didn't have until I got to that scene. I never intended on doing that. Um, my, my, my point being that the material dictated that choice. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an, an experiment that I was constructing the rest of the story around. The material dictated the choice, and then once I made that choice, it dictated other choices. And so, uh, conversely, a novel like Zeroville, which is about movies, I thought it should follow the narrative laws of 
a movie. So it's, it's very linear. It's, it's very externalized. Uh, there's lots of dialogue. There's lo- you know, the material makes, makes the choices for you, is what I'm saying. And in that way, I don't think of myself as, as experimental. The, the experiments, such as they are, have to serve the rest of uh, the work. It's not about the work serving the material, the experiment, rather. Does that make sense? Yeah. Your character sees uh, indeterminate flags of disunity. And I was just I'm sorry? Your character sees flags of disunity, I think is the term you use. And disunity has been something that's easily represented. So I was just wondering what, how you envision those, how you envision disunity represented in those flags? Well, in the, I, I'm not totally sure I answer. I understand the question. In the novel, uh, as the story progresses, we see that the, the country has become fractured. And, and certain parts of the country have broken off from um, from from the rest of the country, and there are certain uh, there are certain sections that of of the country that are referred to as the rupture or disunion, um, and so that's what the fl- so I'm sorry. Disunion is a form of union in a way, so they have their own symbol. That's right. Um, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, just one. Um, I actually had a reference question from uh, Zero. Um, you had a line in there about um, uh, the hermaphrodite um, is in the desert. He just finished his Vietnam movie and now he's making Gone with the Wind. Um, I always thought, is that Chimino? Yes. Oh, okay. I just never could put the, the hermaphrodite. I mean, uh, it's, it's Chimino in the sense that anybody in that novel is anybody. Okay. <laughs> so I think what I, what, what I wanted to do, um, if there are no more questions, is, is I wanted to, to finish with one very, very quick reading. This is just a couple minutes. And this comes from later on in the novel, which is not something I usually do. Um, and without giving away too, too much, uh, it's farther in, in the future um, than uh, the section that I just read, which is just a few years in the future. This is much farther, and people are waiting for the towers to come back. In what by this point is a growing tradition of political uselessness, some call for laying plans to greet the next tower's manifestation in yet another 20 years, although precisely what plan is to be laid remains unclear. Will a massive net be dropped from the sky to hold the towers in place once they return? Will the skyscrapers be tasered into acquiescence with an immense surge of electricity? In the meantime, America, the America, that is to say, that never looked like anything but what it it ever was, a dream, comes to bear a less resemblance to itself until it eludes all recognition. Regions secede from the nation, states from regions, cities from states. By mid-century, the recently formed Oklahoma Christian conglomerate applies to the World Trade Organization for a patent on, quote-unquote, America. A rage of countersuits are filed. 
attempting without satisfaction to assess the petitions by typical standards, standards of singularity, functionality, precedent. The organization's council ultimately gathers representatives for the various claimants in a locked conference room where each is posed a question with the understanding that the patent for America legitimately belongs to whichever answers correctly. Who recorded West End Blues in June 1928? (laughs) The country itself becomes crisscrossed by so-called shadow highways that remain the only geography recognized as federal land still subject to national sovereignty. 15,000 miles of such thoroughfares are marked by countless arched bridges constructed by squatters, desperate to live on or over whatever part of the landscape can still be called America. Sometimes these cults build overnight cities on the highways themselves, risking collision and vehicular slaughter for the privilege of assuming the mystical self-identification American. Although the cultists are viewed by most with suspicion, nonetheless other continental occupants gather at the sides of the highways to listen to the music that comes from these makeshift cities. In the dark of night, in any spot of the lake country, that blasts out all its horizons, the arches of America can be heard in either direction as a series of chiming rings, something as far as the ear can listen. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.